It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, does God really require human sacrifices? Coming up in this episode, does God really care about human life? If so, why did he tell Abraham to sacrifice his son? Why did he allow seemingly innocent people to be handpicked for execution? What purpose could God possibly have for overseeing such events? Do clear and just answers even exist for these questions? Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick, and I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years, and Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? Genesis 22, 1 and 2. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. The actions of God in the Bible are an easy target for criticism. It's so easy to look into this ancient book and pick out events that may not look sensible and even make God look bad and wildly inconsistent. Examining these events carefully does reveal truth and harmony, if we're willing to look for it. One such event is the account where God specifically tells Abraham to take his son Isaac and kill him as a sacrifice to God. This sounds absurd. How can a God of love and compassion and justice just arbitrarily ask someone to murder their son? What possible good could ever come from such an action? And, and what about other accounts in the Bible that seem to show God is minimizing the value of human life? These are hard questions, and the good news is the Bible has clear and legitimate answers. Our title is Thought-Provoking. We have done many episodes about how being a disciple of Jesus means sacrificing our human will and desires to follow Jesus and do our Heavenly Father's will. But that's not the type of human sacrifice we're talking about today. That's right. The Canaanites and others worshipped false gods who demanded the sacrifice of live humans, even children. The Jewish law made this idolatrous worship punishable by death in Leviticus 22, but how is that any different from our God who seemingly required this live sacrifice of Abraham's son, Isaac? And in turn, God required his own son, Jesus, as a live sacrifice. We read about this dramatic event in the life of Abraham. After having a miracle baby when he and his wife were in their 90s, God asked Abraham the unthinkable to offer his son, Isaac, as a sacrifice. Let's pick the story up in Genesis 22, 1-2. It says, now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And God said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Yikes. Okay, there's much more to this command from God than God, as some surmise, saying, bring your son up on the mountain to kill him. The text uses the phrase, offer him. This word for offer is used over 800 times in the Old Testament. This shows a change of location and gives the sense of going or bringing something higher. 
So when something was offered to God, it was being reverently presented and held up before God. So when it says, now take your son and offer him there, reverently present and hold him up before God. Now, there's a sacrifice involved here. We're going to get to that in a moment, but we need to establish that because this is an important detail. So let's look at a couple of examples of how this word for offer him is used. Genesis 8, verse 20. And Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And Genesis 13, 1. And Abram went up, and went up is the same Hebrew word for offer. He went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the south. So you have offering on an altar, and then going up, going up north, essentially, out of a country. So you can see it, it has to do with that change of location and bringing something up. God was essentially saying to Abraham, the life of your son, who was born out of impossibility, Julie, you called him a miracle child, is destined for my service. This child is destined for my service. Offer him freely to me. That's what God is saying here. Let's go back to our, the, the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22, verses 3 to 5. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. See, Abraham's instructions here are just powerful. He calmly states to the young men that were with them that there is a sacred worship that he and Isaac would be engaged in, and they, they, plural, the two of them, would return when it was completed. Can we stop here for a moment? Because this phrase that Abraham says, we will return to you, it's hotly debated because the Bible doesn't tell us why Abraham says this. So either he's lying so as not to arouse suspicion in Isaac about what was about to happen. Or some suggest the Hebrew word means, may we return, expressing a wish, or in the sense of, we shall return if God will it. Or maybe Abraham trusted that Isaac, that if Isaac was killed, God could raise him from the dead at some point because he had this uh, promise that he, he had received that through the lineage of Isaac, all the nations would be blessed. And we're going to talk about that promise from Genesis 21 and Romans 9 shortly. Or what about this? Abraham fully expected of them to return somehow by God providing a substitute sacrifice, which is exactly what happened. Continuing in Genesis 22, 6 through 8. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Well, Abraham was clear. God will provide. So Abraham, again, shows this quiet and unrelenting confidence in Almighty God. Even though it did not make sense to go all this way on this big, long journey and not take a lamp. 
All right. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, it looks like he hides his intentions from Isaac by saying that God's going to provide the lamb. Because think about it. If you answered, uh, you are the sacrifice, <laughs> there'd be a chance that Isaac would have run away, scared and confused. But see, what this was is Abraham uh, had this calm and clear confidence in what he understood as God's power. That's what drove him. And we're going to see that unfold in the next segment. We're going to see just how much faith he had and just how powerful God is and was in this particular instance. So let's get back to the account in Genesis 22, verses 9 through 12. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. Okay, so we can stop there. Remember we read in Genesis 22, 4 that on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. It's a three-day walk to get from Beersheba where they lived, according to Genesis 21, to Mount Moriah, which is in Jerusalem. It's reasonable to assume that they spent those three days, they, that time in profitable and uplifting discussion. I can imagine Abraham instructing his son about the faithfulness of God, the value God places on obedience, the rewards that go with being righteous. This would have prepared Isaac mentally for trusting his father who was trusting the father. Continuing in Genesis 22, 9. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. This is another point in the narrative that gets highly scrutinized. People ask, if Abraham had to tie him to the altar, does that mean Isaac was not a willing sacrifice? And Abraham was roughly 120 years old at this point, although the scholars are not in agreement. Isaac was a young man in his prime and could have easily overpowered his father. It's safe to say he willingly allowed himself to be bound. So perhaps he allowed himself to be bound because human instinct of self-preservation would kick in if his faith wasn't as strong as Abraham's. Continuing in verse 10, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. So you have it all set. You have Abraham there. They're by themselves. They've left the other young men back a ways, they've climbed further, there's nobody around, this is a very private situation, he has explained to Isaac what's happened, Isaac is, and we do believe, willingly laying there, even though he is bound, he, otherwise, he, like you guys said, he would have run. So he lifts the knife, he is going to do this, and you think, how can you possibly go here? What is in your head going through this? And here's what happens. And let me just say, Jonathan, before you begin reading verse 11, there is no coincidence when it comes to God and his providence. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God. And that word fear means morally reverent. And since you have not withheld your son, your only son for me. So, Rick and Julie, Abraham trusted God explicitly. And I think that's the main point as we're looking at this. And, you, and you're still saying, well, wait, he's going to kill his son. Right? We're, we'll, we'll get to that. We're going to get to that because there's much more here. But he did have this explicit, implicit, unbounding trust in God. God's providence always been evident to Abraham. And this is something that we have a hard time identifying with, because Abraham had walked where God had told him to for a very, very, very long time, 50, 60 years before this, all right? So in this specific instance, 
God's providence required him to express his faith in a more dramatic and more committed way than ever before. You see, Abraham had to leave his father's country long time before. That's one thing. That's an act of faith, no question about it. But raising your hand to sacrifice the son of promise, that's a whole different level of faith. And this is showing us the power of faith and the power of God's providence. Think for a moment the historical significance to the ancient peoples hearing of this account of child sacrifice. False gods in the region had for centuries been demanding these kind of sacrifices. And to get to Mount Moriah, Abraham would have had to have overlooked the Valley of Gehenna, where countless children had been horrifically murdered, burned alive to the false god Molech. Would Jehovah be just like these other gods? No, he was merciful and did not require Isaac's life. Back to Genesis 22, 13 and 14. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham called the name of the, that place, the Lord will provide. And in Hebrew, that is Jeho Jehovah Jireh. As it is said this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Well, remember earlier, Abraham assured Isaac that God would provide? Well, he did. He did. He always does. And, and that's one of the big, big, big lessons here with this particular account. And, and you know, Abraham had to look around. Some, sometimes we have to look up. Sometimes we have to look around to see, to notice, to observe, and, and to be able to follow God's providence. Abraham's immediate response was to offer the sacrifice, to reverently present before God and up to God the provided lamb. His next action was to name the location in reverent appreciation of God's providence. So Abraham followed through, and immediately afterwards, he puts this place and pronounces it sacred and reverent before God. We see a lot of compound names of Jehovah in the Old Testament, like Jehovah Shalom, God gives peace. Jehovah Shammah, God is there. Jehovah Jireh means God will provide. These compound names, they're memorials. They're in connection with some crisis in the life of Abraham, Isaac, and the nation of Israel. They commemorate the display of divine assistance so that later generations would know exactly how God helped them in their need. Not only did this experience strengthen Abraham's commitment to obey God, but he learned firsthand about God's ability to provide. And I think about how this commemoration is for us. We are supposed to remember how God provides in our lives. And eventually, this exact location of Jehovah Jireh was where the Jewish temple stood in Jerusalem. It's the present-day Temple Mount where the Alexa Mosque stands. That's the Golden Dome often shown in pictures of Jerusalem near the Western Wall. So it's an interesting point that you have this location marked in all kinds of different ways, but it was the, the original message was God will provide. Very simple, very straightforward, very faithful. Even though it can be hard to wrap our heads around this whole experience, Abraham's faith really shines out. How could Abraham have had such faith? How could he have been so sure that God would provide? These are big questions, and we can only answer them by viewing both the immediate context of this event 
as well as the larger biblical context. Our initial question about whether God requires human sacrifices, that actually still hangs in the balance. As we find our answer in this particular event, we will also find a basis for a comprehensive biblical answer as well. So we're going to go through this account again and look at it in a much more critical way. We basically told the story, and now we need to look at how did this happen and what does it teach us in relation to the principles of God and his treatment of humanity and in regards to human sacrifices. What we're going to find here is Abraham knew some very specific things going into this event, and this is important to understand. What did Abraham know? Well, first, Abraham knew that he had to follow God's leading, as he had already been promised blessings. He had these promises given to him long before this. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So you going way back, this is, he's only 75 years old at this point, and Jonathan, you said at the sacrificing, uh, the offering of Isaac, he was probably somewhere around 120. That's a lot of years in between. He had been given that promise, and with that promise, he changed his life. And he knew this promise, first of all, this promise would be restated many, many, many times. It would be restated to him, restated to Isaac, restated to Jacob, and restated through prophecies as well. So this was a core feature of Abraham's life, following this promise. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. When we looked at the word offered in the Old Testament Hebrew, it showed a change of location and gave the sense of going or bringing something higher. The New Testament continues that same thought. The Greek word means to bear towards, that is, to lead to, especially to God. So you have this sense of bringing something up and forward. He had been following God's promises for almost 50 years at this point, and this is what he naturally did. He followed what God told him to do. Abraham knew that promised blessing from God requires, requires focused acquiescence to God's will. Promised blessing from God requires focused acquiescence to his will. So the first thing he knew is that he had to be in line with the promises. Second thing Abraham knew, Abraham knew that Isaac was without doubt the promised seed, and therefore he had to live. Without doubt he knew that, and we know that. Let's go to first a New Testament verification in Hebrews 11. We were just in Hebrews 11:17. Let's go to now Hebrews 11:18. It was he to whom was said, in Isaac, your descendant shall be named. So you have that New Testament verification quoting from the Old Testament. Let's go back to that Old Testament account, Genesis chapter 21, verse, verse 5, and then we're going to go to verses 9 to 13 after that. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Well, this is, had been another test of faith. God promised Sarah would bear a son, 
The fulfillment of that promise seemed to be delayed, but Abraham and Sarah needed to trust God more. Yeah, Sarah took matters into her own hands to make God's promise of a son come true. She gave Abraham her Egyptian concubine named Hagar in an effort to produce an heir. But once Hagar became pregnant by Abraham, she and Sarah did not get along. Hagar's son was named Ishmael, and eventually Sarah herself gave birth to Isaac. And this is one of those times God asked that rhetorical question, is anything too hard for the Lord? And we pick up the narrative at a family party with a lot of drama. Ishmael's a teenager, and baby Isaac is around two years old. Genesis 21, 9 to 13. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar mocking Isaac. Therefore, she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad of your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid, I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. Let's think about this for a moment. So you have Hagar and Ishmael leaving. They're being sent away because Sarah's upset. And God says to Abraham, it's okay. It's okay. I've got this covered. I'm going to take care of them. Why? Because first, it's your son, and I'm going to make a great nation of him. And secondly, because your son, Isaac, is the promised seed. So he makes that plain and simple but he also says, I'm going to take care of, of Hagar and, and Ishmael. Now think about this. If God would care for Hagar and Ishmael and make of him a great nation, how much more would God care for Isaac when he's being brought to this altar of sacrifice? You see, Abraham had physical evidence of the power of God in his life, and we don't think about that too often. We don't go back and say, well, look at this. He lived with this. He saw it unfold. And so there's this incredible basis of faith that he's working from. The next thing Abraham knew, let's go back to the account of Abraham and the sacrifice and Isaac. Abraham knew that God would provide a lamb because God had requested a sacrifice. But God provided a ram, not a lamb. Why? This could sound confusing, but I consulted with one of our CQ contributors, Mark, who was an animal science teacher, and he cleared up the matter. A ram is an adult male sheep. If it is under a year old, it's called a ram lamb. A ewe is a female sheep. Thank you, Mark. A ram lamb. I had no <laughs> idea. Let's read Hebrews eleven nineteen. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received back as a type. Now that word type is interesting, isn't it? Thayer's Greek English lexicon defines type as a placing of one thing by the side of another, a comparison of one thing with another, an example by which a doctrine or precept is illustrated. So you have Hebrews. We've been reading Hebrews 11. If you notice, we started with verse 17, when Abraham knew that he had already been promised blessings. We went to Hebrews 11, uh, ch chapter 11, verse 18, with with no doubt there was a promised seed. And now Hebrews eleven nineteen comes into play because, and, and it tells us, it tells us unequivocally what Abraham knew, what Abraham's faith drove him to. It says, he considered that God is able to raise even from the dead 
and, re- and, and so Abraham received Isaac back as a type, as this picture, Jonathan, that you just mentioned. Now, let's look at this. Why would God make this drama happen way back at the beginning, you know, with, with, with Abraham? This is one of the answers. It is because it's a type. It's a picture of something bigger. Let's look at three brief type and fulfillment examples. And the type and fulfillment, Isaac is the example. Jesus is the fulfillment. So we've got Isaac and Jesus. First point, Isaac and Jesus were both sons of promise. Isaac, Genesis 17, 18 to 19. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Through Isaac, Messiah would be born. Jesus, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. So both Isaac and Jesus were children of promise, a promise of something to come that didn't look possible. You think about Isaac being born to to Sarah, who was 90 years old when she had him. And then you think about Jesus being born to Mary, who was a virgin and young, young, young woman. Both, you look at it and say, no, can't happen. Both did happen because this is what God was teaching us. That's the first type, antitype, type and fulfillment example. The second one, both Isaac and Jesus were referred to as their father's only begotten son. Isaac in Hebrews eleven seventeen by faith Abraham, when he was tested, up Isaac and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Jesus, John three sixteen For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So you see this unmistakable clarity in the comparison. Only begotten son of Abraham, only begotten son of of God. It's a clear, concise picture. And this is why we have this dramatic event happening on Mount Moriah. You see God explaining something to us long before it actually happened. There's brilliance in this. The third example, the third example of Isaac and Jesus. The lives of both Isaac and Jesus were offered up in reverence as sacrifices to God. Isaac in Genesis 22, 9 to 10, then they came to the place which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Jesus, 1 John 4, 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So you have this reverent, sacrifice of Isaac, who willingly lay there, and Jesus, who willingly offered himself. And just a few more comparisons and this foreshadowing. Isaac carried the wood for his own sacrifice. Jesus carried his own wooden cross. Isaac had his hands secured. Remember, we talked about that, even though he was a willing sacrifice. The hands of Jesus were securely nailed to the cross, even though he was a willing sacrifice. Isaac's back was laid on the wood on the altar. Jesus' back was on the wood of the cross. Most importantly, both showed that one life could be substituted for another. The ram was a substitute for Isaac. 
Jesus was a substitute for Adam and all mankind benefits. It's hard for us as puny little humans to imagine what it was like for the almighty deity God to give us his beloved son. It's much easier, I think, for parents especially to relate to this loving human father, Abraham, who waited a hundred years to have Isaac, and then to think of the pain of having to give him up. I think that this story is told in part because it gives us a relatable way to understand the value of Isaac, the value of Jesus, and the unbelievable gift of restitution that God gave us. But here's the critical difference. This is the big point that we need to make. God never intended for Abraham to actually slay his son. But he did intend for Abraham to show complete faithfulness to his will. Though not literally sacrificed, Isaac literally lay on the altar of sacrifice as a symbol of that which was to come. And that is the voluntary sacrifice of Jesus. So while God tells Abraham, go sacrifice your son, he's really saying, bring him before me reverently. I'm not going to let the actual knife strike happen, but I need to see your faithfulness. This is still a difficult account to read. I think we need to look a little bigger to understand it like you're talking about. This was a specific test at a specific time, and it foreshadowed Jesus. On its basic level, it confirmed Abraham's trust in God and God's ability and willingness to provide. Mentally ill people have killed people saying that they've heard the voice of God telling them to do it. That is not at all what happened here. You know, in giving us this account to study, we learn that God is faithful, and we can trust that, come what may, he will do what is best for our highest spiritual welfare if we are trying our best to live godly lives according to his will. Okay, so we have Jesus in fulfillment of this picture, gave his life, and we already mentioned this, of his own free will and not out of any coercion. Jonathan, let's go to John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. And this is from the Young's Literal Translation. Because of this doth the Father love me, because I lay down my life, that again I may take it. No one doth take it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Authority I have to lay it down, and authority I have again to take it. This command I received from my Father. So you see the absolute, utter willingness to lay down his life. It was a voluntary action. Jesus fulfilled what Isaac pictured, and he also fulfilled the actual shedding of the blood of the sacrifice as well. He fulfilled the Isaac part and the sacrificed ram part. John 1, 29 shows us this. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the man, Christ Jesus, who was the lamb whose blood would save the world. So, Jonathan, as we wrap up this conversation on Abraham and Isaac and this sacrifice and this offering, clarifying contradictions, what do we have? The account of Abraham preparing to sacrifice Isaac on the altar was for the purpose of proving Abraham's faithfulness and showing us the actual willing sacrifice of Jesus. This sets a standard of both honoring the free will of the one being sacrificed and of the sacrifice being offered, having great value within God's plan. So, Rick, both Abraham, Isaac, and Jesus were tested, obedient, and followed through. 
And that's really the main lesson here. There's a test, there is faithfulness, and there is providence, and there is blessing. There's no other way to understand this clearly. This is a real lesson in the knowledge and foresight of God. His plans have been quietly revealed all throughout human history. Abraham and Isaac are one thing, but what about handing innocent people over to someone for the purpose of being executed? All right, this is different. Our next view of the human sacrifice question is very different. Here we're going to encounter the actual killing of several individuals. As we delve into God's perspective regarding human sacrifices, we need to pay close attention to details, to principles, and the time frame of the account in question. Only then will we be able to see the truth of the matter. Here's the problem. We have an account where King David delivered seven men to the Gibeonites so that they could kill them. Why would God support this arbitrary sacrificing of innocent human lives? We go to the account in 2 Samuel 21, 6. Let seven men from his sons, that's Saul, be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, that's King David, I will give them. Wow, this is a clear sacrificing of some lives to appease others. What's this all about? Yeah, and this sacrificing of these lives is without their consent, that's for sure. We were talking about the willingness in our first examples. This is very different. So no matter how we look at this particular issue, it's a hard experience to understand. Here's what we need to do. We need to digest the context of this whole event, and that's going to help our perspective and our understanding. So, Julie, you had quoted 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 6. Let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1, because God communicates to David, to King David, the reasons the people were suffering from a famine. Listen closely to what's happening here. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So it's interesting. There is no scriptural record of these actions of Saul putting the Gibeonites to death, which shows us how many things happened in Scripture that weren't recorded. Uh, someday we'll know, but there's a lot of stories that, need, that can be filled in. This is one of those. However, the record of these actions here in 2 Samuel 21 is enough to see the seriousness of the problem. Rick, you told us to look at the context, but in this case, we can't just look at the Scriptures immediately before and immediately after. We've got to go all the way back to Joshua 9. That's about 400 years earlier when different nations in Canaan formed an alliance against Israel. However, as an act of deception, their Gibeonite neighbors cleverly convinced Joshua, and this was pretty brilliant, that they journeyed from a faraway land. So they show him and, and the, the captains moldy bread, old wineskins, worn out shoes and clothes. They wanted a peace treaty with Israel in order to survive. The Israelites... They agree to covenant with them, but they never consult God about it. When Joshua finds out that they're actually their neighboring Canaanites, it was decided the covenant would stand, but the Gibeonites would be their servants. Now, this arrangement lasted peacefully for generations until at some point, King Saul broke the covenant and attacked the Gibeonites. God required that the Israelites were faithful to the covenant they made, which is why the famine was sent. After three years, David finally asked the Lord why, 
and we find out it was because of what Saul and his household did to the Gibeonites. Israel made the promise, but you didn't keep it. It is a serious offense to break a covenant. Let's pick up on the account in verse 2. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. And, you know, in the beginning of this verse, it talked about Saul's bloody hands. So you see that he not only sought to kill them, he, he massacred, I don't know how many, but you have, he had literally had blood on his hands. This covenant that Joshua made with these people had been in place, like Julie, you said, about 400 years. Think about that. This is a promise between these two peoples that were in disagreement and they lived peacefully for about 400 years because of this agreement before Saul goes and tries to massacre them. It's a really amazing uh, situation where both sides adhered to what they had agreed to do. Let's go back to Second uh, Samuel 21, verses 3 and 4. Thus David said to the Gibeonites, Why should I, What should I do for you, and how can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Then the Gibeonites said to him, We have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, I will do for you whatever you say. And this, again, this fascinates me because these Gibeonites didn't want enrichment. They had the power in this conversation. They were wronged. And King David is going to them meekly and humbly. And they were wrong, but they said, look, it's not about money. It's not about Saul's house. They just wanted justice for Saul's massacre of their people. They didn't want any, they didn't want any gain they just wanted there to be justice. Verses 5 and 6. So they said to the king, The man who consumed us and who planned to exterminate us from remaining within any border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. So here's what ended up happening in 2 Samuel 21.9. Then he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord, so that the seven of them fell together, and they were put to death. So it's a dramatic, dramatic, dramatic event. But again, when you look at what they said, they said to the king, the man who consumed us and who planned to exterminate us, there's a very clear uh, explanation here that this was a serious, serious action by Saul. And they said, we want seven of his kin, seven of his sons. And, and King David said, I will give them. And he does, and they die. So a lot of questions. But first, why would David comply with such a thing? Well, there's, there's two basic things that we need to understand from the Jewish law perspective. The law said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and a life for a life. Let's look at Deuteronomy 19, 11 to 13. But if there is a man who hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and rises up against him and strikes him so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and deliver him into the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. You shall not pity him, but you shall purge the blood of the innocent from Israel that it may go well with you. So you have the sense that if you take the life of someone your life is required. It's a very clear, very straightforward, justice-based system. And you look at this account and say, well, Saul's not around anymore. And so, so how can you possibly do this? 
later, and we don't know how many years later this is. This could be 10 years, 20 years, 30 years later. We don't know. It, it, it's hard to say, but there's a, a specific, specifically a period of time that's gone by. So the second part of this, if a sin is not taken care of immediately, God has made it clear that unrepented of sins would be paid for by whom? By following generations. Numbers chapter 14, verse 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. If you are curious to learn about how generational curses worked in the Old Testament and what relationship they have to us today, listen to episode 1196 at ChristianQuestions.com or the Christian Questions app. In my original question, I asked, isn't this an arbitrary sacrificing of innocent human lives? But when you look deeper, they probably weren't all that innocent because it's likely that the seven men handed over were guilty in helping Saul kill the Gibeonites. These were two of Saul's sons, four of his grandsons. In 2 Samuel 21.1, Jonathan, you read how the Lord said this was for Saul and his bloody house. But there's an important side question. I don't know if you remember, but David made an oath to Saul back in 1 Samuel 24, 16 to 22. I just wanted to read verse 21 from the New Living Translation. Saul says, now swear to me, and he's talking to David, by the Lord that when that happens, you will not kill my family and destroy my line of descendants. Now, David agreed to that oath. Did he break it to Saul when he handed over those seven members of his family to be put to death? Well, no. In 2 Samuel 21, 7 through 9, David spared Saul's grandson, the son of Jonathan, years earlier. David had made yet another oath to Jonathan to watch over his son. David kept that promise. He never promised to preserve all of Saul's children, just the line of Saul. Okay, so the line stayed through that grandson. That makes sense. So it's a hard experience. But we see that justice, and remember, this is the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, Justice had to be met. Justice was the basis. And Saul did something. He committed a heinous sin by going after these people. They were peaceful servants for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And yet he went after them to avenge Judah. No, he went after them because he, he was off. He was not godly. And there was payment for that. The, the famine came and you had to have that price. So we look at that and it's like, this is, this is a hard experience, but this is also the carrying out of justice with the Old Testament principles intact. Now, let's fast forward. The entire purpose for Jesus was to right the wrongs of sin and to lift all of humanity up from the sad and painful hardship of trying to find justice and mercy in an unjust world. So we look at Jesus now with these events in our minds. Let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 9 through 12, and this is all about Jesus. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So you have this beautiful scripture that says in the Old Testament they offered sacrifices again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And, again. 
to no avail because those sacrifices could only borrow time. They couldn't take away sin. Jesus' willing sacrifice was one time for all. And I just have to say, he sat down at the right hand of God. Once Isaac and Abraham come down from Mount Moriah and they go back home, guess where Isaac would have sat? At the right hand of Abraham. Abraham being a picture of God, Isaac being a picture of Jesus. So you see this, this, this whole thing just beautifully fits together. Jesus' sacrifice opens the door of acceptable self-sacrifice for his followers who will be ministers of worldwide reconciliation by virtue of their faithful sacrifice, faithfully sacrificed lives. And Jonathan, let's go to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, if we profess to be a Christian, the question is, what are we sacrificing? What are we giving up for the sake of the gospel? Are we laying our own will on the altar of sacrifice to please our Heavenly Father? Laying our own will where? On the altar of sacrifice. The picture of Isaac just comes up again and again and again. And for followers of Christ, it's the same thing. We need to be sacrificing ourselves on that altar, just like Isaac was willing to lay on the wood on that altar. So Jonathan, let's put this all together, clarifying contradictions. What do we have? Combining the account of David and the Gibeonites with the sacrificing of Isaac, we can clearly see that God's will never supports an arbitrary sacrificing of any human life at any time for any reason. On the contrary, his will was for strict justice in the Old Testament and mercy through the fulfillment of justice in the New Testament. All lives lost will be restored because of Jesus. So God never, ever has lives lost arbitrarily. There is a master plan that he has for reconciliation for all. And that's what Jesus showed us and what his life was all about. Life, death, and human sacrifice must be understood in the context of all Scripture and eternity to truly grasp God's will and way. What about making an oath, swearing that something is true? Are we really supposed to avoid doing this? Now, this supposed contradiction can be a tricky one. Once again, we we'll have to look at the big picture. Jesus makes a plain and irrefutable statement about oaths, but we need to be careful to properly understand exactly what he meant. This can only be done by observing the context of his words and the actions of he and the apostles. There's a lot to this, a lot of moving parts here, so let's, let's get started. First, let's lay some groundwork. Several times in Scripture, God himself swears by himself that something is true. We're just going to use one example here. There are many. This one example, as a matter of fact, is Genesis 22, 15 to 17. This is right after the Abraham and Isaac event and right after they sacrificed that ram. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, 
indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. So you have this, you have this sense of clarity that God swears by himself. There's a standard that's set, and, and, and God is making a very, very clear and specific point. Okay, God swears by himself to confirm that covenant. It can't get any higher than that. But here's my problem. When it comes to humanity, are we supposed to do what God does or not? Let me give you some examples. In the Old Testament law, Numbers 30, uh, verse 2, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word and he shall do all that is uh, proceeds out of his mouth. All right, seems clear. So if you vow to the Lord or you take an oath, do what you said you were going to do. But Jesus says in Matthew 5, 34 to 36, but I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, because it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Rick and Jonathan, why does Jesus seemingly forbid us from making an oath? Julie? This issue yes. has <laughs> several moving parts. So we need to take this in steps. First, first let's grasp the context of what Jesus was saying. Context, context, context. His words leading up to this statement on oaths were lifting his followers to a higher and far more sober way of living the details of their lives. Each and every example that Jesus gave in this context lifts and enhances the moral law of the Old Testament. So we're going to be looking at where Jesus says this. This is smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus is saying many things. And if we listen carefully, there is a flow, there is a context, there is a teaching that's repeated in several things. So Jonathan, let's go to the, this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, so Jesus is lifting the standard higher. Verses 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, again, he's lifting the standard higher. Next, verses 31 and 32, and it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, the standard is raised again. So you have this going three times, and it's, and it's very intense. He's talking about very serious things. The next set of scriptures is Jesus teaching on oaths, Julie, that you already read, uh, that we're considering right now. Right after his teaching on oaths, he goes back to this process. Back to Matthew chapter 5, 38 and 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, Jesus lifts the standard higher. Verses 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, and he is going to lift that standard higher again. So you get this sense that he's continually, I know, lifting the standard higher. He's taking the moral law and lifting it higher and higher and higher. So this is important because if we say that Jesus is condemning any and all oaths in those verses right in the middle of all this, we would be interpreting this piece of his teaching as completely out of harmony with all the other things he was saying. It wouldn't make sense because he is enhancing, enhancing and deepening the moral law. So Jesus wasn't removing or repealing the moral law. No, 
No, no, not at all. So the question is, so what does this mean? So we now need to pay attention to the teaching on oaths now that we've got the context in place. You just gave us the bookends in scripture of this oath yeah. text. Let's read again what Jesus said in Matthew five thirty-three to 37. Again, you have heard that what the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows. And Thayer's Greek English lexicon says that means uh, that's been pledged or promised with an oath. So you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath, meaning to affirm, promise, invoke, swear by, at all, either by heaven for it's the throne of God, or by earth for it's the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head. You cannot make one hair white or black. And then let's continue with verse 37. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is of evil. And many translations say is of the evil one, meaning it's satanic. Yes here means a strong affirmation. It's definitive, not eh, if I feel like it, which could change tomorrow. Okay, so we've got to put this in order. Why is Jesus talking about all of these details with oaths here? First of all, the Pharisees were, as we know, dishonest and very hypocritical. Jewish tradition said that if you made oaths in the name of God, they were binding. But if it didn't specifically contain God's name, <laughs> there you go, there's your out. It's not binding. This gave them a legalistic loophole to make promises that they didn't necessarily want to keep or need to keep. You know, they could, if things changed, they could say, okay, you know what, I made an oath by my head, but not by my heart. So therefore, it's void. So you can see that there's, there's this conditional approach to these oaths. Jesus was saying, if you're going to make an oath, it should be a God-driven oath. Forget all this other stuff. It should be God-driven. A promise is a promise and should be worthy of bringing God's name into it. If they swore by heaven, earth, or Jerusalem, what they're doing is they're minimizing, they're taking away the highest level of promise. And that's why, uh, Julie, you said, you know, Jesus finishes by saying, let your yes be yes. Just do and what you say you're going to do. So what's with not making an oath on your head because you can't change your hair color? What does that mean? <laughs> well, because what it's saying is your hair, now look, a whole aisle in the store tells you you can't change your hair color these days, <laughs> but they couldn't do it then. What he's saying is you can't change nature. So don't be trying to make oaths by things that you have no control over. You don't have control over all of these things, but if you make an oath by promising before God, you are connecting with your creator, with something solemn, with something reverent. In other words, be so truthful in all that you say that it will be unnecessary to swear to its truthfulness or to use any kind of especially forceful language to prove your sincerity that you are neither overstating nor understating the truth. That's great advice. Let's get practical. We've all heard people say, I swear to God or honest to God, I swear on my mother's grave or on a stack of Bibles, cross my heart. We might use these superlatives on trivial occasions to make it look like our promise is somehow more binding. And I think Jesus is saying, don't swear by anything. Just say what you mean, mean what you say. And I found a scripture in Zechariah 8, 17 that God hates a false oath. That's serious. He does. Rick and Julie, the point is, don't let your words come across less 
than your actions. <laughs> Good point. And, and, and that really does put it in, in perspective. Our word should be enough. Now, how do you get to that point? Well, you have to earn getting to that point by living with great integrity. And not just great integrity, but great spiritual integrity as a representative of Jesus Christ. This is where this teaching means so much because Jesus is saying, put away all of that stuff. Be who you say you are, a follower of me, Jesus Christ. Quick quote from Ellicott's Bible commentary. In an ideal Christian society, no oaths would be needed for every word would be spoken as by those who knew that the eternal judge was hearing them, end quote. So we are careful in our ordinary statements we're less likely to be reverent towards God and holy things. Well, Jesus elevates the teachings by taking away the carelessness and deception and making grand and unnecessary proclamations. And that's the key, the grand proclamation. I swear by, you know what? We're, this is not acting. This is not theatrics. This is real life. This is integrity. This is following Jesus. We want to suggest to you that in these verses, it says, Jesus says, make no oath at all by. And he says, no oath at, uh, oath at all, either by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem and so forth. I'm going to suggest that, that that's all one thought. Not make no oath ever, but may, make no oath at all, either by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by your head. Don't do that because that is frivolous. And Jesus is saying all of the frivolity behind making these half-hearted promises must stop now with you. Remember, Matthew 5 is written to his followers, his truest followers. You don't do this. Jesus doesn't say, don't make any oath in invoking God himself. You notice that. It's never put away because that is a promise that is solemn. The sacredness of God himself is left out of this conversation for this very reason. So let's look at some examples of appropriate oaths. Jesus himself Jesus himself swore an oath by God's name to be truthful in answering a very specific question. This is the night before his crucifixion. Matthew 26, 63 and 64. But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure, and that word adjure means to exact an oath. I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, Hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, when Jesus himself was on trial, he took an oath because it was too solemn not to answer. Some Christians use the Matthew 5 scripture to say they can never take an oath in a formal setting of a courtroom, as in, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But Jesus wasn't teaching us to never take an oath. His example is very plain because, you know, he was essentially silent before his accusers, as the prophecy said. And yet this is what he spoke. Why did he speak it? Because he was put by the high priest and said, who said, I'm exacting an oath on you by God himself. And he respectfully answered. He respectfully answered because that was his duty as a man of great, deep, and powerful integrity. The Apostle Paul also several times brought God's authority into his own writings. We're going to give you just two examples here. First is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. 
But isn't this basically saying, as God is my witness, I swear to God? Didn't we just say that a Christian shouldn't swear by anything? What's the difference? Well, you know what? I, I think that this is an important, uh, an important point. You don't see this happening a lot, but the Apostle Paul does it frequently. And you think, why? And the answer, I think, is because look at the audience. Look at who he's talking to. He is preaching to Gentiles. They didn't know God. They didn't have that personal sense of, uh, of ancestry through all of the generations of the Jewish nation. They came from paganism. So Paul, when he's talking to these Gentiles, says, I am calling God as witness to what I'm saying to you. In other words, God Almighty, the God you have just learned about, the God whose Son has died for your sins, this is the one. This is how serious it is in what I'm talking to you about. So I think that you, you have that sense of helping these new Christians coming from pagan backgrounds to lift themselves up in reverence. Another example is Galatians 1, 19 and 20. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Now this does make sense because this was a serious situation that Paul was being accused of not being qualified to be an apostle. And he gave the details of his conversion to show that his message came directly from God so that his teaching could be trusted. So this was a really serious invocation of the Heavenly Father. And in Acts 23, verse 12, 40 men formed a plot and bound themselves with an oath saying, they wouldn't eat or drink until they had killed Paul. I wonder if they followed through and died of starvation. <laughs> well, and, and that's exactly Probably not. <laughs> you know, it's exactly the point. The point is when the Apostle Paul brings God's name in, it's serious. It is truthful. It is powerful and it's necessary. Any oath should not be taken lightly. Please stop with all of the theatrics and be a person of your Christian word. Jonathan, clarifying contradictions, let's wrap this up. Making an oath, swearing to a promise or a statement by calling on something higher than us is serious business. Jesus taught us to be serious enough with our commitments that we can be or be seen as reliable based on our own words, but do not necessarily tell us that an oath made with God as our witness is wrong. Now, remember we read at the end of the last segment, we can't take back what we promised to God. The greatest oath we can make as Christians is our vow of consecration, a word we use to mean our thorough, unreserved dedication to do God's will. It can't be taken back. And, and that's the important thing. We must stand above the rest just the way Jesus did. So in all of these things, we have this incredible, powerful example of making sure that our word is sound and clear and reliable to all of those who are around us. So folks, as we look at this and we wrap this up, think about the contradictions we talked about, the idea of sacrifices. You put it in perspective and it makes perfect sense. Even the situation with David and the Gibeonites, justice was fulfilled. When you look at oaths, it makes perfect sense because Jesus is elevating us to a higher standard. Think about it. Folks, well, listen, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up in our next episode, another contradiction series, Does God Ever Tempt Us? Talk to you about that next week. <laughs> 